At this time, I want to turn our attention to God's Word, and we are going to be in Titus chapter 3 this morning. Titus chapter 3. Today we are continuing our series through Titus, and we're entering chapter 3, but we're actually going to catch the last verse of chapter 2, verse 15, as we begin. And here as we look at the relationship between verse 15 and verse 1 of chapter 3 and all of chapter 2, we are reminded that the biblical text is much more fluid than we usually think, meaning it's not so easily divided as we find in our English Bibles, which have nice sentences and paragraphs and chapters, and it makes it uh, seem much more easy for us to understand because it looks like a book that may have been written uh, in a modern time. But what we have to remember is that the amanuensis, which is simply a fancy word that you can impress your friends with at parties, a fancy word that means the person who wrote down the words that the Apostle Paul dictated to him uh, as he was giving this letter, when that amanuensis wrote down this letter uh, to Titus from Paul, there were no chapters or verses. In fact, there were no paragraphs, there were no punctuation. He wrote in all capital letters, all next to each other, with no spacing for words or anything else. In fact, if you look at the top of the sermon note sheet or the Divi devotional sheet, what you have is actually uh, part of the letter to Titus as it, was, as it originally appears in the text that we have. Why do they write this way? Well, because, frankly, writing material was expensive and they weren't going to waste any of it. And even if there was, uh, in English, in all capital letters, uh, this, this work smashed together, if you were to read it out loud, you would very quickly discern where the word breaks are, and it would actually be fairly easy uh, to get through. All of that is to say, uh, usually when we find the chapter and verse breaks in the English Bible, they are helpful. And they make sense. It's clear to see, okay, Paul is changing gears now. He's moving on to a different topic. But sometimes, as you read through and you reread and you reread, you cannot help but wonder what in the world the guy was thinking when he designated the verse or the chapter that way. It doesn't seem to make much sense. And in fact, you're tempted to believe the joke that when the French scholar who originally was dividing off the verse and chapter sections uh, while riding his horse, he simply uh, differentiated between verses when he hit a bump in the road, such as the Ill- illogicity of those divisions. And yet, verse 15 reminds us that even at the best of times, we simply cannot rely on the paragraph formatting all the time. For this verse provides a smooth, even seamless transition between what has just been said in chapter 2 and what we find at the beginning of chapter 3. And it cannot easily be placed with the preceding paragraph or with the one that we're going to look at. Nevertheless, it is a key verse because it helps us to understand not only how these ideas fit together, but how we ourselves should even hear what we're going to hear from chapter 3 this morning. Paul has just talked about the appearance of the grace of God, bringing salvation to God's people, training them for godliness so that they might be zealous for good works. And based on that transforming grace which God has given to his people in verse 15, Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And what comes next are the very things that Titus is meant to declare to the church at Crete, the things that we are going to look at this morning. And it's important when we hear these things, we actually understand how we are to hear them. How are we to listen, not just to these verses, but really to any passage of Scripture that a preacher of God's Word is going to unfold for us. 
Paul tells Titus, and so every minister of God's word, to declare the truth of the Bible to God's people, and in doing so, exhort them to godliness and rebuke them from sin. Therefore, Titus is to preach with authority that comes not from himself, but from God, to God's people, and they shouldn't disregard him. But that's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy to listen to a sermon and not disregard it. Because if you're like me, you don't really like your sin to be pointed out. You don't really like someone to point out your faults and all the ways that you're failing and throw that into your face, as it were. I mean, how many of us really love it when someone comes up and says, Hey, I think we need to talk about something that I'm observing in your life. I don't like that. I don't like it when my friends tell me that, though they may be right. I don't like it when my wife tells me that, though she is almost always right. We don't like having our faults pointed out for us. How many of you have ever sat in church on a Sunday and thought to yourself, why is the preacher singling me out? How does he even know about that sin in my life? As we have felt the thumbscrews being pressed down into our souls. Perhaps we felt uh, guilty because the godly example that is being exhorted from the text is one in which we fail regularly to live up to. If we're honest, we hate being under the thumbscrews. We hate having our faults and our failures pointed out to us. And if we're not careful, it's precisely here that we can fail to live the Christian life the right way. Because we can tune out that criticism, that critique that comes from the unfolding of God's word before our ears. We can think immediately when the preacher point begins talking about some sin, yeah, that, that guy back there, he needs, to, he needs to hear about that one. Particularly if we feel like, you know, we're really godly because we're in the front. So it's that sinner way in the back that needs to be hearing that. Instead, what we need to see is this is mercy from God coming into our lives. Pointing out the areas in which we fail that we might repent and grow in godliness by His grace. So Paul tells Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If the teaching is the kind of teaching that Paul has just outlined, that teaching that is, that is coming out of God's word, rooted in God's grace, telling us about God's Savior Christ, that the teacher has the authority to rebuke and exhort, to encourage godliness and to condemn sin. And those who sit under such teaching are not to disregard it. We aren't to think he's talking about someone else, or I don't need to hear this, or I think I should ignore him because I don't like the color of his tie, or the length of his beard. Instead, by God's grace, we are to respond to the calls we hear to godliness. Remembering it is is God's grace meant to be in our life. And some of you may sit there and think, boy, that sounds awful self-serving, Pastor, because you're the one that's always up there teaching and preaching. But you need to understand a couple of things. First of all, I'm not always the one who's up here teaching and preaching. And so, what, and so just as I would hope you would, not, you would not disregard what I would say when it comes from God's Word, you should not disregard what any man says if it comes from God's Word when he stands behind this pulpit. But secondly, you need to understand that whatever I proclaim from the text, I must first acknowledge in my own heart. In other words, what you may hear for 30 or 40 minutes, I have been hearing for 30 or 40 hours throughout the week as this text has simmered and soaked and marinated in my mind and in my heart. And therefore, if I am coming with boldness declaring sin or encouraging godliness, it is only because I have declared those same things to myself for the week before. That I have sat under the word even as you are now. And so it's important that we understand that no one is exempt 
from the call to not disregard the, the proclamation of the Word of God, whether it is coming through the preacher or whether it is coming directly from the Word as the preacher prepares for Sunday. All of us sit under the Word equally. All of us need to be challenged and encouraged in living out the faith that God has called us to. And in fact, in the text before us, Paul says that we need to remember. Titus, you need to help them remember. You need to declare with authority the things that they should not forget so that they will remember how they should live as God's people in the world. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the Word of God. From this passage, we see not only the kind of life that God's people should live, but how we are able to live it. It is a life lived by grace that results in good works. How are we to live this life? By remembering four things. First of all, you must remember your witness. You must remember your witness. Paul says at the beginning, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now the word that we have here for rulers and authorities are commonly used for governing officials, not church leaders. So what Paul has in mind here is not an attitude towards those inside the church, but an attitude towards those outside the church, specifically those in position of political and governing authority over us. And I find it to be especially irrelevant to think about these things as we stand on the eve of a presidential election. How, how do we think about not just the president, but especially him? Uh, these, four, these every four years tend to, tend to focus our minds again on these things, but from our mayor and to our representatives and to our governors and all these things, to those who exercise authority over us, how do we think about them? How should we respond to them? How do we relate to them? What happens this November when the man that you voted for loses? When What happens when the man you think is going to be a terrible president gets into office? How are you going to respond to them? How are you going to live under their authority? Too many times I believe Christians are quick to invoke a spirit of civil disobedience at the slightest move of government that they do not find likable. But notice that Paul says the default response to governing authorities is to be one of submissive obedience. And think about, think about where Paul is when he's writing that. He, he's not even in 21st century United States of America where we have an enormous amount of freedoms. Where we can say to the president, I don't like that. He's not in a system of government that has governors and mayors and elected officials. He is living under a Caesar. 
men that history shows are more often than not wicked despots consumed with their own authority. Does this mean there is no place for civil disobedience? Absolutely not. In fact, the clearest picture we see, I think, of how we should think about civil disobedience comes in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are arrested for preaching Jesus. They're told to stop. We don't want you to continue to proclaim Christ and the gospel. Their response, we have to serve God rather than men. Verse 29. Go home and read the entire chapter and what you will see are two practical implications for thinking about when not to obey this command that Paul gives. When to say, I cannot submit to governing authorities. First, we see that civil civil disobedience should primarily come when we are explicitly forbidden from something God has explicitly commanded us to do. Does that make sense? We don't get all up in arms when it's some kind of vague implication that is unique just to our church or denomination. We really like to do X. We can't really support that in the Bible, but we really like doing that. The government says we can, and so we're going to get all up in arms. No, it doesn't work that way. It's when God has specifically said, you will do this or you will not do this other thing, and the government says, yes, you should do that, or no, you cannot do this. It's then that we say, we must obey God rather than than men. But secondly, if we're going to be civilly disobedient, disobedient, then we must be prepared to suffer the consequences as well. Peter and John refuse to comply and they are beaten afterward. And you know the first thing they do after being beaten? They file a protest with their representative, right? No, that's not what they do. The first thing they do, the text says, is they go away praising God that they were privileged to suffer for the name of Likewise, we have to set priorities and think about whether or not we're being selfish, concerned for something we like but isn't necessary, or if we're really concerned about an issue that is so crucial to the Christian faith, it is worth taking a stand for. And if we believe it's that important, we have to ask, are we willing to suffer the consequences of taking that stand? Are we willing to to take on the chin whatever comes as a result of us refusing to submit to governing authorities? Are we willing to say, in our context, to lose our tax-exempt status as a church? Are we willing to, to have to budget tax money? Are we willing, perhaps, even to go to jail? In other countries, we have to ask if we're willing to give up our life. But that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is this, that Christians are not to be known as rebel rousers or troublemakers, but the very best of citizens, respecting and submitting to the civil authorities that God has placed over them over us. More than that, we are to speak evil of no one, Paul says in verse 2, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's not simply those that are far off in a capital somewhere that we're to be worried about. It's also the people closest to us. And again, we have to ask ourselves, how do we relate to our neighborhood? How do we relate to our city, to our community, to our culture? Have we isolated ourselves from the community? Are we disparaging of the neighbors around us? What is our reputation around town and the neighborhood? Do we even have a reputation? Or does not anyone even know we exist? Are we known to be a peaceable people who avoid quarrels and rude behavior, but are also ready for every good work? So, practically speaking, just thinking about my own life the last few months, when the guy down the road launches off fireworks at 10 o'clock at night on a school night, in the middle of the week when there's no holiday for, for weeks on end, how do you respond? Do you go down and get belligerent and get in their face and say, hey, you're waking all four of my kids up for no good reason whatsoever? Shut the heck up and, 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 and put the 
put the water out on the fireworks and let's be done with it? Or do you come with courtesy, with a spirit of peaceableness, firm in your request, but gentle in its execution? What about when you're in a hurry and the lady in front of you at McDonald's has ordered a meal and yet she does not have sufficient funds to cover the expense? And suddenly there is a line queuing up behind her in the restaurant, backing everything up, and she is frantically digging through her purse, coming up with enough money. Do you simply roll your eyes at her and think, why weren't you prepared? Can't you see you're holding us all up? Are you irritated at the the person waiting on her who won't uh, step aside to the other register and get on and start taking orders? Or do you quietly open your billfold and lay down the appropriate amount of money so that she can pay for her food and, and people can go on with their day? Paul says, as God's people, we have to remember our witness. We have to remember the calling we have as God's people to live in this sinful world. It is not one in which we simply bury our heads in the sand and so no one even knows we exist, nor is it one in which they know we exist because we are loudmouth braggarts thinking we're better than everybody else, refusing to submit to authority and not getting along with anybody at the least provocation. No, we are to be peaceable. We are to be kind. We are to be gentle, never backing down from our convictions, but seeking to love and show mercy and good works to all those around us. Paul says, remind, Titus, remind your Christians that this is how they should live. And why should they live that way? To answer that question, Paul says, first of all, remember your past. Point number two, remember your past. In verse 3, Paul says that Titus should help the Christians in Crete to remember where they came from. That is, remember your past life of sin and therefore the grace of God that brought you out of it. Verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let's just unpack this for a minute. Paul says the Cretans were ones who used to be foolish and disobedient. They lacked any intellectual or moral sense about how they should live their lives, which made it all the more easy for them to display their their depravity by being led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. If there was a chance to sin, they took it. When it came to wickedness, they embraced the state of Kentucky's view of voting. I lived there for three and a half years. I understand what it is. Vote early, vote often. Some of you will get that later this afternoon. That's the, that's the kind of attitude they took towards sin. Engage in it early, engage in it often. The result, Paul says, they passed their days in malice and envy, being hated by others and hating one another. That's just a terrible description of humanity. I would not want to be around anybody like that. Well, remember where he is writing to. He is writing to Crete. It was not a place known for its virtues and morality. In fact, the Greek historian Polybius has said this, the Cretans, on account of their innate avarice, live in a perpetual state of private quarrel and public feud and civil strife. And you will hardly find anywhere characters more tricky and deceitful than those of Crete. Continuing on, he says, money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but highly credible. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. Such was life that the Greeks came to have a slang term, to cretinize, which means to lie and to cheat. It is not surprising that one scholar said no people have ever had a worse reputation than the Cretans. 
Part of you wants to shake your head and say, I'm glad I didn't live there. America's actually looking pretty good compared to, to Crete right now. But notice what Paul says. Look more closely at verse 3. We ourselves were once this way, passing our days with hatred for all men. Paul's not from Crete. Paul was a good Jew, but like everyone else in the world, he knew he was a sinner. In fact, Paul understood the depth and the nature of human depravity so well, he says, I was no different than you. My sin looked different. It took a different form and a different appearance, but at its core it was the same. Foolish, angry, depraved, debased, and hateful. And frankly, the same is true for us. Before Christ, we all lived a deplorable life of sin, not because we did the same kind of things as the Cretans or others, but because of the inherent anti-God, anti-people nature of sin itself. We were no better or no worse. And some of you, I just know in your minds, the immediate objection is, wait a minute, I was saved when I was a kid. I didn't didn't do this kind of stuff. Avarice and hatred were not inherent to my character. I did not go around lying and cheating and stealing. How, How can Paul lump me in with them? Again, it's not the expression of the sin that is the issue here. It's all different. God in his grace holds back some of our feet from going as far as they might go. The issue is the inherent nature of sin itself. So that even at 13 months old, When I I look at this precious baby girl and I say, no, no, don't do that. She turns and grins a maniacal grin and does it anyway. That is the very nature of sin. Expressing itself. Displaying the inherent rebellious nature of our being. So ultimately, on one level, certainly some sins are worse than others. On one level, it is, it is surely worse to slash a man's throat than it is simply to throw a haymaker at him in an argument. But on another level, both stem from hatred. Both stem from a, a, an attack on a person made in the image of God and therefore it is an attack against God himself, a rebellion against the created order in which he has made us and therefore worthy of eternity in hell. In that way, sin is no different than any other sin. Some of us sit here and we think, what what good is it to remember that past? Some of us are so ashamed of our past, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Why would Paul tell Titus to tell these Christians? Why would he tell us today, remember our past? I think primarily because it humbles us. It humbles us. It causes us to realize we don't deserve the grace we've been given by God. And therefore, we can never be proud and arrogant about our faith. It should remind us that we have nothing which we did not receive. Even the greatest successes we have in this life that seem to come from our diligence and hard work and wisdom and physical prowess are in the end gifts and blessings from God for which we should give thanks. Who gave you the mind to think clearly and wisely and make good decisions? Who gave you the experience of life that crafted you in such a way that you saw the the evil of certain sins and strayed away from them? Who gave us the health and vitality we have to work hard, long days, sometimes long nights, to hone our body, to be physically fit and achieve athletic success? God, God, God. How much more so the spiritual condition of our lives before Christ. 
Therefore, when we look back to our past and see the sin and depravity that is there, how sweet now is that grace that brought us to life. How tender are those mercies that brought us from darkness to life. When we remember, remember and ponder these things, we cannot help but be humble and in our humility be thankful to God. Likewise, if we remember our sinful past, we won't be so quick to write off disagreeable, even hateful people that we encounter who are sinners. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's far too easy, isn't it? Even as God's people, especially as God's people, to dismiss, to write off, to have no time for those who are openly and obviously sinful. It is easy to belittle them and think less of them. And Paul here is saying, not so fast. Not so fast. You were one of them. You used to be just like that. That used to be your life. Therefore, don't be so quick to dismiss them. Don't be so quick to to write them off. Remember, that's what you were like and you experienced the grace of God. How much more then should you be gracious toward them? How much more should you show grace and kindness towards them that they might come to Christ just as you did? Paul says, remember your witness, remember your obligations to society. And the way you do that is by by remembering your past, but you also need to remember your salvation. Remember your salvation. This is the third thing that we see. Verse 3 has shown us our need of salvation and brought that to our mind. Here Paul shows us what God has done to meet our need in Christ. As he says in verse 5, he saved us. That is, he rescued us from the inevitable result of our sin. God's eternal judgment. But Paul doesn't just leave it at that. He unpacks the salvation that God has given to us that we might not just remember it, we might delight in it. First of all, he shows us in verse 4 the, the source of our salvation. Paul says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You know, we talked about this last week. The appearing of our Savior is meant to describe the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when that small word appeared, Paul is summarizing everything that we read about Jesus in the first four books of the, of the New Testament, as well as what the other 23 books of the New Testament are seeking to explain and apply. Namely, that this coming of Christ, the appearance of salvation, came as a result of the goodness and loving kindness of God. That is, that is staggering to think about. I recently heard a Christian song that had this line, He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. And it went on to extend an invitation for those to come to Christ. And I appreciate the invitation, but I could not sing those words. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. Biblically speaking, they are, they are wrong. If God is not mad at us, if God has not disappointed us, then why in the world did Christ have to die on the cross? Of course he's mad at us. He is eternally angry at us. He is furious at the indignity we show before him in our open rebellion and sinfulness. It disgusts him at his core. But he is not just angry at us. He is not just mad at us. He is not just offended by us. He also loves us. And he is gracious to us. And he says, though you deserve to be consumed in my wrath in an eternity of hell, I will have mercy on you. I will have pity on you. I will will be gracious to you and give you what you do not deserve. R.C. Sproul is surely right when he says, God saves us from God. 
And he has done this by sending his son into the world. So every time you read about a lifeguard who goes into the deep in order to save someone from drowning, every time you read about a firefighter who who rushes into a blaze to save someone from death, every time you, you read about or hear about a soldier who runs into enemy, enemy fire to save an injured comrade, every time you see a story about someone risking their own well-being for the sake of saving someone else, you are seeing a glimpse of the work of Christ, who was sent not because we are worth it, but because God was gracious and good and loving towards us to send Christ into this world to rescue humanity who deserved death. That's the source of our salvation, God himself. And so it is also the basis of our salvation. We see this in verse 5. What does Paul say? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We might be tempted to think that though God is the source of our salvation, he gives salvation because we've earned it. Because, because somehow we are worth the salvation. That God has, has in a sense said, okay, if you, can just, if you can just be good enough, then you can have this salvation. And here Paul says, no, it, it doesn't work that way at all. That, that is never the way it works. It comes by his own mercy, not our righteousness. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us mercy. He took pity on us and loved us and gave us a gift that we aren't worthy of. This is his salvation, his grace. And notice the means by which this comes to us. Verses 5 through 7. Paul saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is how salvation comes to us, through his Holy Spirit. The Father, as it were, has planned the salvation of the people. The Son has accomplished the salvation of his people. And the Spirit has applied the salvation of his people. There is a Trinitarian nature to our salvation, right? Isn't that what we just said? And if, if, if you don't understand, just read, just read like the first 20-some verses of Ephesians chapter 1. The Father designs salvation, that I am going to not only create but save sinners. The Son brings about that plan through coming into this world, and the Son then applies the salvation won by the Son on the cross and through his, his life and resurrection to our lives. And it begins, Paul says here, with resurrection, or excuse me, with regeneration. It is the new birth that Jesus speaks about in, uh, in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. It is a spiritual enlivening that God does with us through his spirit, whereby he enables us to clearly see and understand the gospel that we might believe. But he goes on as well. It is not just a regenerating work of the spirit. There is also a renewing work. That is to say, he begins changing us from the inside out. He, he transforms our lives to reflect the glory and the holiness of the God that has saved us. Much like Pinocchio, a fake boy with a wooden heart, God gives us real life with a heart of flesh, turning us into the people we were created to be, people who know him and love him and serve him. And this spiritual regeneration and renewal stands alongside the fact that we have been justified by his grace. There is, there is two different things that God is doing here. The one is the supernatural, life-giving work of the Spirit. But the other part of the Spirit's application of the, the life of Christ results in our justification. That is to say, we are declared not guilty before God. 
the, the sin of our life was put on his at the cross. And now the righteousness of his life is put on us by God's spirit. Though guilty of sin, we are declared not guilty because Jesus has borne the punishment of our sin in our place. This is the salvation that God has given to us. And we see the goal of this salvation in verse 7. He saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Christ we have been made heirs of God, inheriting him and his glory forever. We have then a hope of eternal life. That is the fullness of salvation which we have only tasted in this life. Have you ever, have you ever just sat down sometime and just try, close your eyes and try to imagine what is an eternal life going to look like? I mean, we are so bound by time. It's, you know, we wear, we wear timepieces on our, on our wrists, and we have them on our phones, and we have calendars that mark out 24-hour periods of time across months and years, and we celebrate births and deaths and anniversary. We are so bound by time. That's okay, because that's how we're, that's how we're created to be in this life. And yet, consider, there will be a time when there will be no calendars. There will be a time when, when, when the, the horizon goes on forever. There is never the threat that the sun is going to set and darkness will come and the day will be over. It is one glorious, eternal day. Not tainted by sin. Not wrecked by anger or rebellion against God. But a place where love is so manifestly present. Because we are in God's image and in God's presence. That love actually continues to grow infinitely across the timeless existence we will have. So that somehow, incomprehensibly so, the joy that we have the moment we stand face to face and see Christ and fall at his feet will somehow continue to grow forever so that heaven never becomes dull but increasingly becomes a loving joyous more glorious place each and every moment of our existence forever sit and and just ponder that for a minute for a minute frankly it's 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 all my mind can take is about a minute and then it just kind of like switches off and it's like it, it doesn't make sense and yet that is the promise that awaits us heirs of god through Christ. Paul says that we are to remember this salvation. Namely, that we might be encouraged to press on in faith and good works. We have remembered our witness. We are to remember our past and our salvation. And now, finally, we need to remember our mission. Number four, remember your mission. In verse 8, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What saying is this? I think it's what he just said in verses 3 through 7. It's the invasion of God's grace in the life of the sinner that redeems him from sin. It is the gospel. Why is Titus to insist on these things? To keep teaching them over and over and over again. Why are we supposed to remember them? Verse 8, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The gospel is our motivation for good works. That's what Paul is telling us here. He tells Titus he wants him to remind the people of Crete, the believers there, of their mission before God. Don't let them forget what they're supposed to be about. 
Don't let them make it optional. Remind them that they have believed in God and therefore are to devote themselves to good works. This is excellent and profitable for them. Now, we've, we've seen over the last few weeks, good works has been an important theme through the book of Titus. Let me, let me just take a second and, and summarize what we have seen. And Beginning in chapter 2, we've seen that Christ has redeemed people for himself and purified them in order that they might be zealous for good works. There is an intentionality to it. It's not just, oh yeah, and by the way, you're saved. Go out and do some good works. No, he has purified us for this purpose. Not that we might even simply do them, but that we would be zealous for them. And while those works are never the basis for our salvation, even as we have seen today, they are nevertheless an important evidence of our salvation. So, if you see a man who says, I have trusted in Christ, and over the course of his life there is no fruit, there is no good works, you have every reason to doubt his profession that he has trusted Christ. In fact, Paul has said there are false believers who give evidence to their lostness by their lack of good works. Moreover, it is a life of good works that only prevents people from being able to condemn you, but they actually beautify the doctrine of the gospel and prevent the word of God from being reviled. How you live your life will either make God look more glorious or less glorious. It will reveal the Bible to be more reliable, more authentic to a non-believer's life, or less reliable and less authentic. It's kind of like a man who would make a documentary about global warming, about the, the imminent disaster that is coming upon us and how the seas will rise and wash away the coastal cities and therefore we must reduce immediately all carbon emissions and yet flies everywhere in a private plane. What does that do? That makes his message suspect, does it not? Likewise for us, if we talk about the grace of God who saved us from sin and is a joy of our life and yet we walk around with no joy, delighting in sin, looking no different than everyone else. Will anybody really want to hear our message? Paul, in fact, says that Titus is to be a model of good works, that every pastor is to set the standard, to set the pace for the congregation. Titus is clear that the grace that brought us to Christ and salvation he has provided continues to operate in us to lead us to and empower us for good works. And notice what he says. We are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. That means there must be an intentionality to it. You're not just going to fall into good works. You're not going to wake up one day and just all of a sudden good work after good work after good work. That's probably not going to happen to most of us. Tonight and this week, ask yourself, how will you pray for yourself and others? That's a good work. Plan for it. What opportunities will you pray for and look for during the week to do good works? Who are you planning to share the gospel with today, tonight, this week? How will you go about sharing it? Who do you know that's in need that you can give assistance to, either with money or other resources that you have? That's a good work. Plan for it. When you show up at community group tonight or church next week, how will you encourage somebody? What testimony of God being at work will you share with them? What scripture verse from your own reading or perhaps even from this morning's Sunday school or church will you share with them to build them up and point them to the power of God in their life? Loved ones, this is the mission that God has called us to. Spreading the gospel message of salvation as we evidence its truthfulness by a life of good works. We've seen that they are are two important parts of life as God's people that we must remember. Living as a good witness in submission to authorities and kindness towards others. 
and to live a life that is marked by good works. That was the first thing and the last thing that we saw. And in the middle, Paul has told us how to do it. It's by remembering our sinful past. Though worthy of eternal judgment, God has given us His grace. And we remember that grace that brings salvation to us and renews us. This then is the motivation for godliness and good works in our life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful for this life that you have given to us. We are thankful for the blessings that you have poured out on us, God. Help us not to take lightly those things that we are to remember, both our obligations to the world and the obligation that you have committed to us as your people, the outpouring of your grace. Father, may we find ourselves destroyed by that grace, understanding just how unworthy we are. And yet, God, may we find ourselves also rebuilt by that grace, remembering and delighting in the lavish love that you have poured out on us, even at the expense of your own Son. Father, by remembering these things, may we be changed and transformed and day after day grow more and more into the people that you desire us to be. We ask it for Christ's sake.